Thanks for downloading this show from PC One. Before we get rolling, here's a word from one of the folks who helped bring you this podcast. At Farmers Insurance, we know a roof can withstand a lot. One exception being an airborne car. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree. Rethink payments. Learn more at braintreepayments.com backslash Forbes. This is Forbes Sports Money on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. This show is all about the business of sports. And it is my great honor today to have figure skating champion, sports and fashion commentator, and culture icon, and a man I have learned a lot from about how to do commentating on television, Johnny Weir. Johnny, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, it's my huge honor. Thanks for having me. I have to say, the main reason why I've wanted to talk to you for so long isn't because when I used to watch you figure skate as great as you were. It was because I have a sort of second career with a sports TV show called Forbes Sports Money. And as somebody who used to watch a lot of Olympics but not really understand figure skating, the really great moves, anybody can appreciate. And if somebody unfortunately falls, you understand that's not a good thing. But the way that you and Tara were able to explain it at the 2014 Sochi Games, my wife, our nine-year-old daughter, and myself all instantly became big fans of you and Tara and the figure skating. You know, I mean, what you've done for us and for that sport, I think, is tremendous. And I got to ask, firstly, you know, in 2013, I think it was, when you announced your retirement from competition and said you were going into commentating how hard a decision was that i started to skate when i was 12 years old which was already a bit late compared to most elite figure skaters uh, they start age two three four five somewhere in there and i was 12 and uh, i immediately fell in love with it and my parents i was so lucky to have the parents that i had to kind of give up everything where we lived in this town with one stoplight once we moved to Delaware, where I trained, they had to drive very far to go to work and to make the money to pay for the ice time, the costumes, the whole thing. And, um, you know, when you give up basically your entire family's livelihood so that you can achieve, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. And my whole life was dedicated to figure skating and to having, you know, if I was lucky, six minutes in the sun at the Olympic Games, whether I won or lost, but just to make the Olympics was was the goal. And uh, the fact that I was able to do it twice, you know, it was, it was an extreme honor to represent the United States, and it really is a testament to uh, not just my work ethic and the things I was able to accomplish in a short period of time, but also uh, it takes a village to raise a kid. So my parents, uh, my coaches, everybody uh, dedicated so much of their time and effort to me that when you make that decision to leave a sport that has dictated your entire life, it dictates everything from your schooling to the way that you socialize with other people, relationships, having a normal childhood, going to you know your first drinking party in college, those sorts of things. Um, I, I gave all of that up for just the dream of competing at the Olympics. And <laughs> I wouldn't have changed it for anything in the world. But when you decide to give that up, 
uh, it's a very difficult decision. You still wake up in cold sweat thinking you're late for practice and your Russian coach is going to scream at you. But NBC had been really supportive of me during my career as a skater and then immediately after the Vancouver Olympics when it seemed to many that I would sort of leave competitive skating, they were trying very hard to get me to be a part of their broadcast team. But I wasn't quite sure if I was ready or not to to give up on those dreams of possibly competing in a third Olympics in Sochi. And it took me until 2013. Our season started in September and ended in March. So the 2013 autumn is the beginning of the Olympic season for, for figure skaters. And it just was very clear to me after attempting to come back to competition that, you know, with my age and my technical skill set, I wouldn't be able to compete against a 17-year-old doing three quads in a free program. It, I, it just wasn't possible, as good as I may have been. So I had to make the very grown-up decision to give up my childhood dream and my childhood life and continue on. And I'm very lucky that I had NBC backing me from uh, from the time I was still competing um, so that I could make a very easy segue because it's not as easy for most skaters. I don't know that many people listening to this will know, but, I mean, it can be a very cutthroat sport, very cutthroat business. You know, I wonder, was there any sort of, when you and Tara... Lipinski started first working together with it. Was there sort of a feeling out process? Well, um, certainly with NBC, because we were pretty much I, especially. Tara had worked in commentary for a few years before I joined the NBC team. So Tara had experience. But for me in particular, um, I had a very brash personality when I was competing. I sort of said whatever I wanted to because um, I certainly was trying to let the American public know who I was and make them understand what the life of a figure skater was all about, really. And um, the only way to do that was, in some ways, by, by being loud, but more importantly, by being myself. And a lot of times when you work in television, uh, being yourself isn't always the easiest path to success. Figure skating in particular, it's a very political sport. It's a judged sport. And, of course, the people that have the most merit ultimately do win. But there is a lot of politics in it, and I was, you know, on both sides of that coin through my whole career, whether, you know, I was the golden child of the U.S. Figure Skating Federation or I was sort of the weird uncle that, you know, putting me down one place may help another American skater rise up another place politically, and um, there was all of that. Towards the end of my career, um, I was training primarily with Russians, and I speak Russian, and and trained in Russia, and that was kind of a political knife across my throat to the U.S. Figure Skating Federation. And, you know, I kind of put myself out there, and there was even an official that said a big reason that I was on the 2010 Olympic team was because at that time I had a reality show and I was the most popular of the U.S. athletes. So you certainly do find your way, and I think it's no different in television, but it's a very different game. Tara and I were coming into our commentary careers, her commentating the ladies, me commentating the men, and she and I had the idea to pair ourselves up and, and work the men and the ladies together because it would add another level of dynamics to the broadcast. It wouldn't just be us with Terry Gann and our play-by-play announcer, and uh, it, it would just add something a little bit more conversational, a little bit more real, and something that we thought the American public certainly would be into. It isn't just you know, setting up a creative, beautiful moment to make a great TV show, you have to entertain the audience or they're going to change the channel. NBC had to get behind us and test us for a little while, and then 
at the Sochi Olympics, Tara and I had no idea what to expect, and we were so bowled over and so humbled by how much support we received. What was it about those discussions and the conversations that you think made NBC say, you know what, Uh, we've got these two here, and we're just going to let them do their thing? Well, I think uh, something that definitely was helpful, uh, the first Grand Prix season, which is the, the series of six events and a final, that happen every fall for the figure skaters, Tara and I were the voices of those events for NBC proper, and we usually kind of pony up against football. So the, the viewership isn't quite like the Olympics, so we had a lot of time to find our legs. And then at the Olympic Games, we were still what we called ourselves the B team. So we weren't doing primetime figure skating coverage for NBC for 20 million viewers. We were doing the NBC Sports Network broadcasts. We were covering every single skater from first to last place. And that gave us four hours every day where we were having to create a live television show. And the only way that I could do that, and, and what I told NBC at the very beginning, was that I will always be myself. That's how I've made my name. That's how I've always handled my career, whether it's as an athlete or a, a public figure. I have to be myself, or my audience is going to know that I'm faking it. And you guys will have to fire me, and I will be, you know, jobless and homeless. They were really behind me from the beginning just because of my personality, and I think in addition to having a very flamboyant personality and loving fashion and all of that, I'm a pretty smart guy, um, despite not having a proper education, I'd say. You know, I, I know how to talk to people. I know I've, I've spent my whole life explaining figure skating to my extended family from rural Pennsylvania who has no idea what a triple axle is versus a triple toe loop. And I've spent my whole life doing that. So I knew I could do that. And, and with Tara there, um, you know, as sometimes I get very off-topic and I go full balloon, she's the string that holds me down. And she and I are such a good team. And, and coming from figure skating, we really didn't trust one another. Uh, we didn't trust other skaters very much. We both had very few friends in the skating world. And she and I, for some reason, just immediately hit it off. We had each other's backs. And that made the partnership so much easier. And I think NBC saw the fact that we didn't need a lot of coaching. We didn't need a lot of manhandling because we were covering our sport, something that we know better than, you know, anyone that's watching. And um, if you add that with the fact that we have personalities young, uh, we know how to entertain an audience, and we've been performers our whole lives, I don't think there was a lot that NBC had to be worried about. And I really applaud NBC for, you know, having the guts to put a gay dude as the voice of, of a major sport, especially during the Olympics. I think that's that's um, a really brave move by NBC, especially someone that was at that time as untested as I was. Did you find when you were watching your first competitions and, and commentating on them with, with Tara, as looking at it as a former champion skater to not be overcritical? Or did you just say, you know what, I'm going to tell it like it is in, in, in my style and separate myself from when I used to be a competitor and used to be in there battling some of these folks? That is a difficult thing to, to kind of turn off. I'm one of those weird competitive people. Everything is a competition. But I felt a very sincere obligation to show America again what figure skating is, what modern era figure skating is, explain to them what they were watching. And, uh, you know, I make a point of telling it like it is. And there are many times where I see my friends that are still competing or people that I admire, and I had to say something critical of them because it was right there in front of the audience. And I have to be honest 
as, as honest as possible with the audience watching at home so they can understand why that guy lost to the other guy, even though the other guy may have fallen. Why is the other one so far below him in points? I, I have to be honest about that, or I have no, I have no position on television. You can't fake it. It's right there in front of you. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. We've already talked about the importance of letting your customers check out and pay with their preferred method. Let's break it down with a specific example. There are more than 200 million people who use PayPal. If you don't accept PayPal on your site, that's 200 million missed opportunities. Why miss out on that? Braintree makes it simple to offer PayPal and almost every other way to pay at checkout. Braintree. Rethink payments. Find out more at braintreepayments.com slash Forbes. Skating, when you're learning the sport, of course, and, and, and training, and all, I mean, it's very expensive. I don't know that a lot of people realize that. And I may not be phrasing this the right way, so forgive me if I'm not, but I mean, your folks were basically blue collar. I mean, it, you, you didn't come from a wealthy family. How hard was it uh, to train, to get the money to train, to get the ice time, and, and in a relatively short period of time, since you're starting at 12, make yourself a champion? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there are so many stories like that in, in American sports, people that started from nothing and created this career for themselves. It doesn't come without a huge sacrifice. Um, I think the harder thing than being able to afford figure skating, because it is... I won't say it's a prohibitive sport in how much it costs. I was an equestrian beforehand because a lot of people from my area rode horses, and that's buying a horse eventually, buying a trailer, room and board for the horse at a, at a farm or a farn somewhere if you don't have your own. That can be, be, very, be very expensive as well. But the people that were behind me, and I mentioned this before, my, my first coach would go months without giving us a bill. Uh, my personal trainer at that time would go months without giving us a bill, and then when we would receive the bill, it was far less than what they actually deserved. And it gives me chills still to think about the amount of people that believed in me and were willing to give of themselves so that I could could succeed. And you know, as I've gone through my life, I, I try as hard as I can to make sure that they know that they're appreciated and um, never forget birthdays or special occasions, things like that. But you know, compared to the people I was competing against, my family and I, we were far less well-off than than them. And then when you get into a political situation where you're being judged and you have a coach, for example, that not many people have heard of and you're competing against the, another little boy who has the top coach, the top choreographer, the most ice time, the coming from the most illustrious, expensive club to to represent, um, it, it, there is um, there's a bit of discrimination, I think, in figure skating politics to those people that, you know, may not have been able to play the game in the same way or on the same field as a wealthier family. You know... But at the same at the same time, <laughs> let me finish yeah. that. Um, at the same time, I don't think that people that are born with everything necessarily know how to fight as hard with, as people that mm. grew up with very little. Um, I think that, that it may be stereotype, and, and it's certainly, you know, uh, I wasn't born with a lot, so I can't speak to, to that end. But um, I think when you don't have a lot, you fight so hard to achieve, and you fight so hard to be able to keep up with the Joneses, and you fight so hard because you know how much ultimately rides on it. 
And um, I think it was a huge advantage in that way for me to not be able to start training with the best coach in the world or uh, to have a huge mansion and a driver and a helicopter to take me to practices and then the whole thing. <laughs> I definitely fought harder so that I could someday have those things. One thing I always wanted to ask you, Johnny, because of how quickly uh, this has grown, your brand, that is, into all these other sports and fields, was it something you mapped out, or did it just happen? I think I, I'm one of those people that sort of tumbles through life, and I believe in myself very, very much, and I have a really firm understanding of my skill set and who I am as um, not only an entertainer and not only as a broadcaster, not only as this or that, but who I am when I wake up in the morning. I have a really clear vision of who I am. I try not to map anything out because I'm a big believer. I'm not a religious person, but this is a quote that somebody who was religious told me. said, make a plan and God's going to laugh at you. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think about every day. So um, I work hard, and if I'm given a task, I complete it to the maximum that I can. And I think that my work ethic and uh, my belief in myself and my ability to feel that I can be myself in any situation has certainly helped me. And as a broadcaster, I hope to grow more and more. And, and Tara and I have projects that we're working on together. Um, I have projects that I'm working on solo. And there's just the world is our oyster. It's just how hard you want to work to achieve it. That's the greatest advice I could ever give somebody. And also, never being afraid to fall down. I know that's fitting coming from an ice skater, but um, <laughs> you start being, the minute you start being afraid of what, a, what life is going to do to you is the minute you stop living it. How would you describe the Johnny Weir brand right now? It's hard to say what my brand actually is, and I think that that's a, that's a big advantage to me because I can do anything. I love fashion, and I'm getting invited by different people to be a part of their brands and to help um, sort of oversee different things that they're doing. I mean, even a local furrier uh, near my parents has asked me to design a whole collection for him and, and just to kind of make it a little bit younger. Um, Tara and I are, are podcasting ourselves, and we're learning what that actually means. And we don't actually talk about anything. We're supposed to talk about sports. But, you know, everything's trial and error. And I think that Johnny Weir as a brand is just Johnny Weir. And whatever that means to you is what my brand is, because ultimately... I am a performer, and I rely on um, fans, and I rely on people allowing me to sit with them in their living room and watch a sport or watch a TV show. Um, I'm there to please the, the public. So my brand is whatever you think it is, not what I think it is. Johnny, I want you to know I cheated, and uh, earlier I listened to the podcast that you and Tara do, one of the things I found out from that is that apparently your parents uh, still listen to your podcasts and follow your move and, and, you know, have some questions for you after some of those podcasts. Oh, definitely. I mean, Tara and I, we, we both have, have crazy, busy lives. I mean, we're both in a situation right now where we're preparing for her, her nuptials coming up in June. As figure skaters, as Olympians, we're both overachievers. So we do way too much work and we get way too much in our heads about a lot of different things, and the wedding is no different. We're preparing for that, and we make jokes about our daily goings-on. I mean, ultimately, we meet a lot of people, so there's always a funny story to tell. And um, we, we like bringing our fans to, to our daily lives, not just seeing us on the broadcast or seeing us at our most fashionable. Uh, our podcast is really real. We talk about everything from Windexing to Lisa Vanderpump. Uh, for the most part, we're just people living our lives, and I think that's what the podcast has been great for. 
How did you and Tara, I mean, I don't know if everybody realizes, but you guys are like best friends. And, and how did that evolve so quickly? And what is it about that relationship that makes it so powerful? We share a lot. And things that we do as a team are a big part of who we are to the public now. Um, she'll always be Olympic champion Tara Latinsky, and I will always be Johnny Weir, and we'll always be those two separate entities. But the fact that our businesses rely in some ways on one another, uh, definitely you have to learn to trust that person. And I think the fact that um, we chose to be friends and we chose to work together, it was organic. And um, figure skating is a small world, but generationally I never really knew Tara until we started working together. And um, we knew of each other, of course, but we didn't know one another. And, you know, because we decided that we should pair up on the broadcast, we decided to spend more time together, and uh, we're thrown into a lot of situations. For example, the Olympics, that's a month of work for us. So we go for one month and sit in the host city, and we're together. And uh, because we're still sort of feeling out the politics of television and, and who to kind of cozy up to and, and how to do all of that networking stuff, which I'm terrible at, but Tara is very good at. Um, you know, I rely on her for a lot of stuff, and she relies on me for a lot of things. But, you know, with her upcoming marriage and my divorce right at the beginning of our friendship, I mean, we had to go through a lot of real-life struggles together already. And that's a real quick way of of bonding to people, in addition to the success that we had really unexpectedly in Sochi at the Olympics with our commentary and um, ultimately right after the Olympics being promoted to the A-team for figure skating and, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, but, you know, taking down a dynasty that had sat at the, at the helm of figure skating for so long and not even trying to. Uh, we were just trying to do a good job. There's no better way of, of bonding people than, you know, throwing them to the wolves and having them rely on each other. And we certainly do, and, and we love each other, and it's completely organic and real. And I feel very blessed every time that we go to work together or, or just, you know, talk during the week because there's somebody that understands every facet of what I'm going through in my life, and it's wonderful. Do I understand this correctly? Are, are you doing a Hermes show for her wedding as well? Oh, a shoe. A, a shoe. shoe, okay. <laughs> okay, well, it brings me yeah, to the um, fashion thing. Yeah, please. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the fashion thing is, is something I've been passionate about forever. Again, when I was young, um, I don't know why, but I was obsessed with fashion. And, and um, in my brain, you know people, when you're young, you think about, oh, someday I'm going to have a, a palace or a Mercedes or whatever you think is, is the moment you've made it. I always kind of thought about clothes as knowing you've made it when you've had certain clothes and were able to wear certain designers. So um, I've studied fashion for a long time and just been a huge fan, almost as a collector more so than, than somebody that just buys stuff and wears it once. I, I collect things. I take care of them really well. So looks and things you get on TV are very much me. It isn't just to make um, <laughs> a show. It isn't just to, to be crazy. I, I love every single thing I put on my body and for Tara's wedding, she has a really specific look that she wants me to have, so I'm having a friend do a custom suit for me, and I'm having a customized Hermes shoe, and um, it, it, it adds such another layer of fun to what I do. Had I showed up, it was actually funny, the first Olympics in Sochi, uh, 2014, uh, NBC does receive um, wardrobe allowances from different uh, companies they work with, whether it be Nike providing um, the sort of sideline reporting clothes or Brooks Brothers doing the suits for a lot of the male anchors. There are those opportunities for NBC employees to, to wear Brooks Brothers, but 
when they said that to me, I said, guys, I'm so sorry, and I know we've only worked together for a few months, but my name's Johnny Weir. I am, you know, a really gay dude, and I love fashion. I can't just wear a navy blue pinstripe Brooks Brothers suit every day at the Olympics. <laughs> so they really had to open their minds up and allow me to, to play with it, and so many designers and, and uh, people in the fashion world have been so open to me, uh, whether it's borrowing their samples for a whole month while I'm in Rio, or um, promoting their brands in certain ways. I mean, it's just been um, a love fest between me and fashion. I'm, I'm really happy about that and, and honored because fashion is, to me, it's artwork. And every time I put something from a designer on my body, I tag them on social media. My face is their face for that, for that time I'm wearing their thing. And I take that really seriously. And we're taking a quick break to say thanks to our sponsors for making the Forbes Sports Money Podcast possible. I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed. Unscripted. Unscripted. Yeah, let's go with that. A marriage made in heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil LaBute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You were no, the very this, first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. Stephen Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. <laughs> Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. Getting to uh, the business of figure skating, do you think that it's becoming more and more difficult for America to compete as it becomes more and more expensive to train and prepare as an amateur? Uh, for figure skating? Um, I don't think necessarily that it has to do with, with training costs because for, for the most part, the training costs are very similar to what they were 10 years ago and, and, and 20 years ago even. Um, ice time is very similar in price. But like fashion, figure skating has a tendency to go in and out of it. Um, same as gymnastics. Every four years there's a boom. And then uh, it's kind of over. Every four years is the Olympics, obviously. And <clears throat> my opinion is that right now the business of figure skating, uh, whether it be tours and, uh, I mean, Disney on Ice is one thing, and that's something that everyone always brings up because it's, they have commercials and it's something that people see, almost like the Ice Capades, which has now been, you know, extinct for many, many years. People still say, hey, you do the Ice Capades. Disney on Ice is, is very visible and it has Disney marketing behind it and it doesn't necessarily have Olympic champion skaters in it, but skaters are able to make a living doing it. But as far as the big tours like Stars on Ice, Champions on Ice, where they brought the current world champions, Olympic champions, legends of the sport, and they would tour for 96 or 100 cities, those days are over at the moment. And that, I believe, is simply because there aren't a lot of um, great American champions at the moment. And, and I think that figure skating relies a lot on a woman being the champion of, of the world, whether it was Tara Lipinski or Michelle Kwan or um, Karen Kadavy, I mean, Nancy Kerrigan, there have been names through history that have been a top, beautifully packaged, beautiful American lady. And right now, the American ladies aren't competitive in many ways with the rest of the world. And figure skating is still sort of stereotypically seen as a, as a girl's sport. So if there are no American girls for American girls to look up to, 
what are they going to do? They're going to go become Stone Biles or Gabby Douglas and, and do gymnastics instead of choosing figure skating because in gymnastics, the American ladies are the best. They're winning. They're, they're awesome. Um, but in figure skating, it's not like that right now. Yeah, I'm looking at numbers and going back to 1998, ratings for primetime U.S. figure skating championships gone from 13 million down to, in 2017, 1.8 million. Now, I'm sitting here going, they don't actually showcase enough of the skaters. And by that, I mean, you know, you look at a lot of the different things they do for basketball players or football players, and they, you know, they get into their stories and what they're doing, especially now with streaming and social media. There's so many ways to connect with the athletes. I don't feel that they do that. They sell the sport uh, enough, in my opinion. And in fact, I, I even think from some of the things I've read, the endorsement deals aren't there like they were perhaps 15 or 20 years ago. Yes, I mean, you can look back even a few years ago. U.S. figure skating is an awesome federation, and they support so many different programs to get people involved in skating. They're very supportive of their skaters for the most part, but also figure skating is run by people who think from a different era. They aren't thinking for a modern time. While many of the skaters are on social media, are very available to their fans and so on, the people that actually have the money to make change, per se, um, don't really understand how the world is working right now. And it's hard for me to say that I completely do. I'm not a business major. I don't understand what makes people tick. I do understand that everyone has a shelf life. But, um, you know, they're, the skaters are young. They're beautiful. They're the same as they've always been. They're talented. They win medals, um, not just the U.S. skaters, but everywhere. Um, the, the main hotbeds of skating right now are definitely Russia and, and Japan. And that's where, I mean, I do most of my touring in Russia and Japan simply because there are no opportunities here. It's the people that have to spend the money to create those personalities in the sport that either don't want to or, or are unable to do it. There isn't a lot of money coming back into figure skating at the moment, at the U.S. level at least. Endorsements for Olympic athletes aren't like what they used to be, from my understanding, just speaking with, you know, skaters from the past. I mean... Uh, top-level figure skaters, there used to be an era where there were yearly contracts where you would make, you know, much more than the average blue-collar American worker so that you could focus entirely on figure skating. And that a lot of it came from sponsorship money and people like, you know, as an example, uh, Smucker's Jam wanting to get behind a certain skater who was then going to headline their tour. But now their tour is only eight cities, and it's a huge company, a huge conglomerate. So it doesn't really matter that much if their eight cities sell out or not. They're just doing a little mini tour. So there isn't a lot of money to put behind creating an hour-long feature that's going to air on HBO, Real Sports, or whatever, to send a whole camera crew to the girl that may or may not get seventh or eighth at the World Championships. The fact of the matter is there has to be an American star, but nobody's going to invest in anybody right now because they aren't proven. And One of the great things, I think, as far as your brand building is the tremendous social following you have on Facebook, you have on Twitter. What advice would you give people in terms of using social media to help build their brand? Well, you have to be yourself and you have to be honest. The minute people start to think you're faking it or you're just 
posting something because someone told you to post it and they're giving you $10 to post it, that's the minute that they stop believing in you and they stop, um, they stop relating to you. While I have a whole variety of, of fans from many different um, nations, uh, financial backgrounds, ages, um, now with Instagram, they have this awesome thing that's called Instagram Insights where you can see who your followers are and where they come from. So I was shocked that of the whole world, my top two cities are New York City by far, followed by Moscow in Russia. Um, where I have a huge fan base, but I never thought that Moscow would be ahead of Los Angeles, Chicago, Tokyo, for that matter, but it is. And you get to see that 79% of your following is female and 21% is male. So I really try and have content that is accessible to everyone. Um, everyone is a fan of someone because of either the way they look, their talent, um, the fact that you want to be friends with them. I mean, there's a whole slew of reasons that people want to be a part of your life. And Instagram and Twitter and Facebook are a way to bring them in daily to let them see who you are, what you're doing. So you have to post things that you know are relatable to at least a certain amount of your fans um, or your followers. So um, I'll post skating stuff a lot for my skating fans who know me from the skating years. I'll post fashion stuff from the people who love to see what I'm wearing. Um, I post a lot of my dog because I love my dog, and a lot of people also have dogs. And it just helps you connect to people in a very basic way by saying, oh, he wears clothes, I wear clothes too. Um, but the minute you start to really shove something down people's throat, whether you're selling something, I, I, I mean, I would stop following if all somebody was posting was, here, save 10% on my book when you shop at this right. retailer. Even though that's what a lot of retailers want, I know my my fans and my followers don't respond well to that. So you have to know your audience, and you have to be very wary of who they are, and you have to post things that they can relate to. I know on April 16th you're going to be uh, hosting the red carpet arrivals with Tara at the inaugural Beverly Hills Dog Show presented by Purina. Is there a different preparation you use for different events, or is it more or less the same regardless whether it's the Olympics or the Oscars or the Super Bowl or a dog show? Well, I mean, there are certainly fish-out-of-water moments that Tara and I get into that are really entertaining for the audience, but for us, it is really daunting. For example, we went to the Super Bowl media day for, for Mr. Collinsworth, and it was terrifying. We were competing against, you know, ESPN and Forbes and Time and all of these people to get a, a second of FaceTime with Gronkowski. And luckily for us, we are reasonably well-known in the sports world, and, and people would let us kind of cut the line and get up to these guys. We're thrown into situations a lot that I think, I think NBC just likes to see how we're going <laughs> to fish our way out of. <laughs> um, and when it comes to something like the Beverly Hills Dog Show that's going to air on, on Easter Sunday on USA and later on on NBC, um, it's it's hard to prepare because the dog world is so is so different than anything else that that Tara and I do, as is the Kentucky Derby. Um, but the the dog world really is very much like Best in Show, that uh, guys movie. You know, it's just full on crazy backstage, running around, searching for a certain stuffed animal, or grooming the dog, or believing the dog is completely freaking out, even though it's standing there perfectly still and happy and content. It 
definitely throws us for a loop when we get thrown in situations like that. Also, Tara and I, we, we love famous people and we love, um, you know, our actors and actresses and our favorite singers and everything. But when you're interviewing people that you may not know who they are, such as the, the new star of an NBC, um, comedy or a wrestler or, or Lisa Vanderpump, who you don't know personally, you know, who she is, but you don't really know what to ask her about the dog show other than what are you doing here? Um, we definitely have to study up and prepare for what we're going to talk about with different celebrities that may show up at, at the NBC events or different dog breeds, of course, because we have to be able to talk knowledgeably about those things more so than just our own dogs. And we interviewed the handlers of the winners of each of the uh, groups. So that was, that was a pretty cool to see what actually makes those dogs so special up close and what makes them the best in their groups and what their handlers think of them. There's a lot of interest definitely that goes, that goes uh, into it for us. So we work hard because we're interested in knowing what's going on. But uh, at the same time, we do get thrown to the wolves a lot. And it's, it's great fun. <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. I like getting, getting challenged. In my opinion, and this is the first time you and I have ever chatted, if I had to pick one single reason why your brand has evolved so well and is so great, in my opinion, is because you completely let everybody inside of who you are, totally. Tell me where the courage comes from to allow that to happen. I mean, I do carry an, an iron club with me when I'm walking around by myself at night or I practice very late, so I am in some ways scared of people that could hurt me. But for the most part, I am completely unafraid of anything that a person could possibly say to me or about me. I don't put a lot of value in what others say, whether it's good or bad, because I want to be completely happy with myself and, and what I do and the product that I bring to the marketplace or who I am as a person. I want to be proud of every aspect of who I am and what my life is. And caring very little about what other people think of me comes from that. I'm not here to please anyone but myself. And that sounds very selfish, but I think it's given me the strength to handle being judged from being 12 years old until I ended my skating career to being judged continually on television for, you know, this or that or the fashion or the hair. I mean, life is short. You have to live it. And, and I think the courage that my parents have given me to be myself, they're both very much people that walk to the beat of their own drum and stick up for themselves and um, stick up for people they love. I think that sort of um, down-home love and, and support definitely helps me. I, I definitely know how lucky I am to come from a very solid family background and, and to have uh, the ability to fail through my whole life. And I talked about that before, but it's, it's very important to allow yourself to fail because then you can open yourself up to not everyone thinking you're great all the time and then you working hard to prove them wrong. <laughs> and uh, I definitely think that's where it comes from. I, I am an open book. Um, I can't see every single thing in my life is, is out there in public, but a huge portion of who I am is out there for whoever wants to see it to see. And it makes me stronger. Well, Johnny, this has been a great honor. I, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for the privilege of being able to chat with you. 
you continue to be an inspiration to me and I'm sure many, many others who uh, follow and admire your career. And uh, I hope in the not-too-distant future uh, we get to chat again. And I look forward to watching the next dog show. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Everyone sells today. So how do you bring your best sales game every day? Simple. Listen to the Advanced Selling Podcast on Podcast One. Hi, I'm Bill Kasky. And I'm Brian Neal. Each week, we answer listener questions like, how do I compete against a cheap competitor? And Brian's favorite, because he always has an answer to this, how do I meet with a CEO when they won't even return my calls? The Advanced Selling Podcast is where the best go to get better. Listen Mondays on Podcast One and on iTunes. This February, history will be made. Millions will watch as 80 years of unjust stigma is left in the past. A product that drove good people to the black market will be revealed as one that's creating a new global market. This February, what inspired the symbol of counterculture will at long last be seen as just culture. The new normal is coming. Will you be one of the first to see it? Visit MedMen.com to watch an exclusive preview. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.